This is Mitchell Harding. On January 4th, 1969, I was at an historic meeting on the Owyhee Indian Reservation in northeastern Nevada. Members and representatives of the Western Shoshone Nation of Indians attended the meeting. I was privileged to be one of only two white persons in attendance. As a guest of Rolling Thunder, the legal advisor and medicine man for and to the Western Shoshone Nation. At this meeting, two major views held by and about American Indians generally came face to face. The traditional Indian viewpoint expressed at that meeting by Rolling Thunder is the subject of this program. Preceding the meeting, a list of grievances was published by Oscar Johnny, sub-chief, concerning legislative and legal problems of the Western Shoshone. Before we hear Rolling Thunder's speech, recorded on January 4th, I'd like to read that list of grievances. Please be aware that many of the points made are now plaguing traditional Indians in the same or similar form in all 50 states of the Union. Dated 21 December 1968, Elko, Nevada. Quote, there has recently been a number of newspaper articles which have quoted me in regards to John Rolling Thunder Pope and the proposed campion and demonstration at Carson City, Nevada, in opposition to certain proposed anti-Indian legislation. I wish to state at this point that John Rolling Thunder Pope and I have worked together in tribal affairs for a number of years. And although the demonstration and campion was originally Pope's idea, we have discussed these matters frequently and were in mutual agreement as to what must be done. The statements that have been made in the press to the effect that I thought that he had gone too far are malicious falsehoods and misstatements and are obviously originated from the Bureau of Indian Affairs so-called tribal councils and intertribal councils. They also attempt to make it appear that I am a part of the BIA-inspired propaganda and slander which has been waged against Rolling Thunder. I intend to clear up some of the misconceptions. Rolling Thunder is the legal advisor for and to the Western Shoshone Nation of Indians and has papers signed by myself as sub-chief and by the chief and council of the Western Shoshone Nation of Indians. This is the original tribal organization of the Western Shoshone Nation. However, other chief and tribal councils were set up about 1937 by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. These government-organized tribal councils do not represent the Indian people. Many people are not allowed to vote. Partial List of Grievances 1. Voting I personally know of a number of people who have resided on the Owyhee Indian Reservation from 10 to 40 years but cannot vote. 2. Jobs Jobs on the reservation to which the Indians are supposed to have first choice are given to white people although there are Indians qualified for the work. The only Indians who are hired 
are the relatives and friends of the councilman. 3. Water Rights, Wild Horse Dam The Owyhee Indians want first priority to all water from the Wild Horse Dam. 4. Survey Reservation A survey to determine the original boundary lines of the Owyhee Reservation as of 1877 by executive order March 31, 1877. 5. Tribal Council In view of the fact that the Tribal Council does not work with or for the people, we recommend that the present Council be abolished and that Tribal Affairs be returned to the Indian people to have their own Chief and Council. 6. Land We wish to maintain the tax-free status of our land, not to be mortgaged or sold. 7. Chairman Council The Owyhee people are in the dark about what the Council does or how much money is used and for what. We recommend that the Chairman of the Council should always make a report to the people after going out on business as to what was done and how much money was used. 8. Bureau of Land Management we do not want any more Bureau of Land Management of Reservation Lands. We do not want any reservation lands leased to non-Indians. 9. Hunting and Fishing We do not wish any non-Indians to be allowed to hunt and fish on the reservation. 10. Business Lease and Rent Money a report should be made on how much lease money or rent has and is being paid by stores and businesses on the reservation. 11. Range Fee At the present time we pay for reservation range at double the rate of what white people pay for similar range on the public domain. Range rights should be free to Indians. 12. Hospital Doctors we would like to have a good hospital and good qualified doctors instead of interns and resident trainees who practice on the Indians. 13. Roads. Roads are not maintained. 14. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Bureau of Indian Affairs office to be abolished at Owyhee. 15. Housing. Tribal housing should be reserved for Indians instead of white people. 16. Irrigation water. Irrigation ditches are not maintained, and Indians pay for the water they do not receive. And 17. Constitution and bylaws. We wish the Wheeler Howard Act and the Constitution and bylaws thrown out, all puppet government abolished. This report has been submitted to me by the traditional representatives of over 150 people at the Indian Reservation at Owyhee, Nevada, who have been misrepresented and represented by the government petty dictatorships 
which are called tribal councils, which have unlimited power over the lives and lands of the Indian people. As anyone can see, we have a collection from over 100 years of wrongs and mismanagements by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Bureau Puppet Government. Now, many states are starting to pass anti-Indian legislation. Recently, some were proposed for Nevada, such as bills to take away our free hunting license, and the bill against peyote, and the tax on pine nuts. So when Rolling Thunder suggested a camp-in or demonstration in Carson City, I couldn't see any reason to object, and there might be much to gain. We have recently received assurances from reliable authority that no anti-Indian legislation will be passed in the state of Nevada. So we are happy and pleased to hear the good news. As a result, we have decided to postpone the proposed campion and demonstration until further notice. But we will continue to keep an eye on future anti-Indian legislation, both in Nevada and Washington. In the meantime, I propose a congressional investigation of the conduct of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and their so-called Tribal Councils and Intertribal Council. Signed, Oscar Johnny, Sub-Chief, Elko, Nevada, 21 December 1968. End of quote. This list of grievances was background to the traditional Indians' presentation at the Owahi Indian Reservation of the Western Shoshone held on January 4, 1969. I was there, and most of the remainder of this program consists of Rolling Thunder's speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the legal advisor and medicine man for the Western Shoshone Nation, Rolling Thunder speaks.
with facts and figures. And I ain't about to let any Uncle Tommy Hawk, wherever they might be, I'm not calling anyone by personal name, unless it was in private, wherever that Uncle Tommy Hawk might be, sell my wife and children down the drain. It happened in Oklahoma to the Cherokees already. It happened to a lot of other tribes. Go back there today and see that they don't have anything left, maybe five or ten acres of land or no land at all in many cases. Been robbed of everything. Promised a lot of money on a big claim and then stolen by shyster lawyers together with puppet councils. Now, not all councils are puppet councils. We have a definition in the handbook of federal Indian law in that regard that when the councils lose contact with the people, lose support to the people, that then they become instruments of the federal government. The federal government does not relinquish its power, but takes over the operations of the councils. Then they become puppet council. Now, who's a puppet council? That's for you to decide, not for me. Because we have traditionals also on some of these councils, traditional Indians, and we have to have. We have no choice. Many cases have no choice. Now, Indian government, in the beginning, is not something that the white man gave the Indian. When they came from Europe to this country, they adopted the Constitution of the United States and the Iroquois Confederation. We are the teachers, not they. The devils, white men, they came from Europe, out of Inquisition, out of uh, dark ages. They had no democratic government till they came here. The Indians had tribes, they had chiefs, they had councils long before any white man set forth foot upon this continent. And many places still do today. It's with one of those traditional chiefs that I've chose to work, Chief Frank Tamo. He is a traditional Shoshone chief. That was pointed out to me by many old people, including Oscar Johnny's grandfather before he passed away, Harry Johnny, and other old people, that he was the Shoshone uh, traditional chief. So his name was also upon a tree. So that's why I chose to work with him. That uh, they were recognized, that catchword the Bureau of Indian Affairs uses and some of their Indians recognized long before. That they were recognized when they signed a treaty in Ruby Valley. The treaty is our charter, all the charter we need it's a federal charter, better than anything else you've got. Handed down to some clerk in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That, that thing he gave Mr. Manning, gave to Oscar Johnny. The Indians didn't make that up. They didn't draw that up here. That was issued to them out of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They all are. And they're worried in such a way. It gives most of them, everyone I've seen, gives Secretary Interior, or his agent, which is the Indian agent, 
It can come down to the Indian agent himself, power to annul any action taken by the council. So there it makes them a pure dictatorship and a puppet. It doesn't mean that all the people on the council are puppets, but the council itself, the official governing body, is a puppet instrument, a distinction of the powers of the federal government's all it is. Now, I'll give you one example. The council at McDermott, Nevada, is not a puppet council because they're representing the people at this time. The traditionals have taken it over, just like might happen here, very near future. When you get a fair vote, not rigged, when you we have federal registrars up here, like they had in the South, to count the votes, which we're going to have. We have a federal marshal, and we'll have traditionals helping you count the votes and uh, decide who can vote and who can't. And you'll have a different group of faces, and some of you, maybe not all of you, but I'm sure that there's going to be some changes made at that time. And so those elections, we'll have to see how they can be brought about by some kind of uh, court action possibly, because the old guard and the Bureau of Indian Affairs are not going to want to give up their little petty dictatorships that aren't representing the people and misleading the people on these claims cases. Actually, there's a federal law posted in all post offices that forbid federal employees from participating in partisan politics. The Indian agent is a federal employee, and he's violating federal law when he does that. Now, I've not misrepresented myself in any way, and I've told you who I am. Now I'm going to tell you where I get my authority. From Chief Frank DeMault, in a traditional way, that his representatives are appointed. That's true. They're also subject to the approval of the people of their localities. Such election was held this past year in Battle Mountain, Nevada. The traditional tribal council still, still functions. The only difference, the great difference I see is that everything the traditional tribal council does is done in the open. There are no secrets. Financial reports are made at every meeting. The, uh, it's there for anyone to see. But we didn't come up here to be on trial. We didn't come up here as guests of this council, or guests of the Indian agent here. We came up here as guests of the people here. We came up here as representatives of the people and to speak for the people, because not too many traditional Indians in this area notice that speak good English. I can explain them so. So in that regard, many of the Uncle Tommy Hawks that have been brainwashed and made over whitewashed think they're white men are serving the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, rubber stamping whatever the Bureau wants. Uh, they do have an advantage, sometimes a better education. I was sent off to school by my people to do what I'm doing right now. I was sent off, and not to an Indian school either, it'd be brainwashed or anything like that, to, so that I could stand up and face the white man, and I've done that ever since I was a small child going to school. I had to do that. At, uh, 
Now the people that are white, we found out a lot of them were very unhappy about the last tribal elections of the council. I note in this regard, I'm not saying puppet council, let's be decided yet, maybe in court. But I am saying, I'll, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt here this time and call it the tribal council, even though it was established by the government. And the uh, so-called tribal council at Lee, Nevada, that was mentioned a short time ago, also was established by the government. A vote, 47-4, no, correction, 43-4, two against, out of about 2,000 Shoshones that could have voted. And their own constitution and bylaws call for 30% of a vote before any audience or election could be legal. Yet, Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, not only allowed them, but encouraged them and set them up to take office. Now that's a, a typical way. That's not a, that's not a isolated instance. That is a typical way that these councils were put in office in the first place. Now, as to how the elections were conducted this last time, I've heard something about it. And that people been on the reservation some as much as 40 years, tribal members enrolled that couldn't refuse to vote for this reason or that reason. Now, we're going to find out about that, and we're going to find out a few other things. We're going to start asking the questions now, and I've got some questions, and they're loaded. And you better have the answers, because I got the I got the books to back it up. So you guys can get ready. One thing, I've got the minutes of your one of your meetings here. How I got it, I'm not going to tell you. Now this here is a meeting that was held in Waihi, Nevada. October 30th, 1968. Now in here, I won't go bother to read the whole thing unless you want it, but it's quite extensive. But in here, your tribal council agreed to go into the state law for hunting and fishing. It says right on the last paragraph, Nevada Fish and Game Department would like to enforce fishing and hunting regulations for non-Indians on the reservation. The tribe would adopt these regulations and submit this to the Nevada Fish and Game Department. The tribe would adopt them. You can take this, you can read it over if you want, but uh, they are making agreements with the Game Commission. And while it's for the regulation of the white people in the beginning, it always works out the same way. After the claim's paid, then's when you better watch out when termination takes effect because you're going to pay for your hunting license, too, in the long run. Now, I say they were invited here. Here's something right here that proves it. I think this council here turned it out. A guide to fishing on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation, Owyhee, Nevada. I hope you've all seen this, because your council issued this for the public. About We got a hold of it and heard about it about the same time that uh, we had a little scuffle out in Ruby Valley. Some of you may have remembered that uh, white men were hunting on the Indian lands, and there were a few of us that saw fit to go out there and put those people off. 
after we tried to get help from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and different agencies, is supposed to protect Indian rights. And the sheriff, we got none. So we loaded up our old rusty rifles and shotguns, and we went out there and rounded them up and put them off. Because they don't belong on there. But it took my law books along with me, too, on that so-called raid in Ruby Valley. I had my law books right there. Don't think I didn't. So this law, law of this law is all right, if it's interpreted right. And it says that laws of doubtful meaning shall be interpreted as in favor, construed in favor of the Indian. That has not been complied with, has not been done. Now here's one right here I'm going to read you. Here's for hunting on Indian lands. This comes out of uh, Federal Code, uh, Section 216. Every person other than an Indian who within the limits of any tribe of the United States has existing trees, hunts or traps, or takes or destroys any peltries or game, except for substance. That means if a guy was starving, he could kill a rabbit. In the Indian country, shall forfeit all traps, guns, ammunition in his possession, used, procured to be used for that purpose, and all peltry so taken, and shall be liable in addition to a penalty of $500. Violation of section as offense, hunting and trapping in Indian country, constitute an offense. Establishment of fisheries in Indian country is unlawful. Well, it is unlawful. And general laws as to punishment extended to Indian country. Now, I could go on and on and read you the whole book. This here, I photostat for Stanley Smart's trial, McDermott, Nevada. This laws, these laws here are all pertaining to hunting. And where the Indian has not only rights on the reservation, but on all unceded lands where no settlement's been made or sell out like you're presented with at this time under the guise of uh, land claims. Where that has not been done and no session been made, the Indian retains all his rights to hunting, to the minerals, to forest, or anything upon that land he wants to claim. Now, I heard Mr. Gus Garrity make a statement earlier. I wrote it down here in my notes, but I don't need my notes. I got a pretty good memory. And I heard Mr. Garrity make a statement, what minerals? What minerals? And I'm shocked and surprised that Mr. Garrity, he's a native of Nevada, and he would make such a statement. How about the uh, quicksilver mines up there around McDermott? Biggest ones in the world. How about the oil they're drilling around, down around Ely? Two wells got away from them, they capped them. Kept, uh, several of them and two of them got away. They're producing now. How about the uh, oil out in Pine Valley was discovered? The Indians are entitled to 14 and a half percent by law to all minerals, all oil that comes out of that ground. Now that's what, why they want to rush this land claim. And these fellows, your council, are supposed to be educated. And this is what mystifies me. Why they don't do a little research? why they don't inform their people are for their own benefit, 
if it's money they want, if that's all they give a damn about, is the money, then there's far more money to be made in not selling than there is by selling. It was the old sages in Oklahoma, the only tribe that came out and did well, that got oil. They held on to their land, they did not sell, they kept it tribal. The other tribes took up allotments. They sold off the majority of their holdings, and unless they struck a well on that allotment, they didn't get any oil money. But it stands to common sense. If a man went past the first grade in school and can read and write, a little research in this would tell you that 40 cents an acre, which was major, actually it was 37 and a half cents. You always sharpen your pencil, go a little more thicker, and it was 37 and a half cents in Northern Bayou Plain, an acre price of a hundred years ago, and I'll tell you how I know personally, I bought three different parcels of land in Carlin, down where I live, Carlin, Nevada. I could not get an abstract deed. They didn't seem to know what it was. Now back east you can't buy and sell property without an abstract, in a lot of places. But I found out in Carlin I couldn't get an abstract. So I went over to Pioneer Title Company in Elko and I asked them why. They didn't want to tell me. Well, I got a little white man's education, enough to know how they think and put it into words. I told them, you'll tell me or you'll give me my money back. Well, that they didn't want to do, and they told me. The Indians have the aboriginal title, but this is good. Assurance of clear title, this piece of white paper they give me. But it was not an abstract deed. And who has the original title? They have to admit it to me. You Indians own the land, and it's your land you're selling. So that means that the white people out there are squatters. That's what it means exactly. So, you would have had that aboriginal title in the first place, even if they didn't want to recognize squatters' rights in the first place. The Indians were there first. From the beginning, they've admitted that. The boundaries of the Shoshone country are defined on those maps. Another thing they don't tell you, that they excluded areas like Ely, where the copper mine is. Although Indians lived all over and all around that country, it shows it's a dishonest thing they're doing. I got a hold of a map up at McDermott, a meeting we had there. It was laying on the table like that in front of me. Uh, Zuni, superintendent of Indian Affairs, sitting right beside me. And he stood up before all those people there and told them, this land claim sellout doesn't include the reservation. I grabbed the map and unfolded it and pointed it out, and he agreed with me that all three reservations over there were right in the middle of all that land claim sell-up. So they tell you, they got the guts to tell you too, you're not selling the reservation. Check your maps and then tell the people whether you're selling the reservation, what you're selling. Don't take that sharper, shyster lawyer's word for all these things. They're out, they're picked by the government, they're okayed and rubber-stamped, and they're brought here for these Indian agents, and they sound good, they've got a briefcase and shiny shoes and a necktie, and they can uh, make you think you're going to be a millionaire overnight. I'll tell you something that wasn't even mentioned here about that northern Paiute settlement, or the, uh, the entire three areas for that matter, that hasn't been mentioned at all here today. You know where that money is going? Mr. Garrity did say at one point there 
it was a very little, a small amount, 40 cents an acre for some of that land. And if the Indians would recover probably a small amount, something like that. Well, I'll tell you how small. You want to know how much money you're going to get? You're not going to get rich. Those lawyers are. They're going to be millionaires. But you're not. Not in that kind of a deal. They've got a trust fund set up down in Reno, Nevada. And I'll tell you who some of the people are. So you can check it out yourself. One of them's name's Reverend Matthews. And his father. And there's some bankers. And some preachers. And respectable devils. White people, big shots. They're going to take care of your money. They're going to give you 150 or 200 maybe even $800, whatever it takes to keep you quiet so you won't make too much noise about getting skinned. The rest of the money is going directly in that trust fund. Then they're going to hire ever no good relatives they ever had as secretaries, bookkeepers, or do research, just any kind of a deal to get on the gravy train. And that's where your money is going. It's not going, uh, they, it's not going to let you uh, people get rich. They don't intend for that. They never did intend for it, just like the California Indians. They uh, wound up with uh, $150, and now I understand they're going to pay a few more dollars out of the millions and millions that they were paid for the land claims and, and disregarded the forest, the minerals, the oil, and the timber everything that really counts for something. Now, if the people don't sell, another, another generation of Indians, they'd be too well-educated, and they, they would know how to read these things, and they would be explaining to their people in such a way they would hold out for something better. That's where your so-called tribal council has failed you. I say so-called because I don't recognize them as a council. The traditionals, we have our own council and uh, under the treaties. They don't recognize us, so why should we recognize them anyway? They were set up by the government. I don't consider that they are a representative branch of the Indian people. And on this hunting deal, I've just read you the law. Now that's Maybe one of the first things we'll probably go to court over. Then there's other things. The improprieties of the elections. The uh, failure to take care of the irrigation ditches. The failure to take care of the fence lines. And the cutting off of water of uh, some of the Indians just because they happen to be traditional or you don't agree with them. And another thing, contrary to Federal Code 25, I've got it typed out of the book and ready to use at any time, is the hiring of white people on the reservation to do jobs when there's Indians qualified for those jobs. I'm talking about carpenters, bulldozer operators, heavy equipment operators of all kinds on the pretext. Now, Mr. Bobo, one of the past Indian agents up here told me years ago when I complained when they put this highway through here that they weren't hiring Indians by first choice like the law requires. And his vague excuse was any Indian that had ever been arrested, and I pinned him down to it, even for a parking ticket, certainly a guy had been intoxicated, wouldn't be qualified for one of these jobs. 
Now, it don't say that in the book. No place in there. Does it say any such thing? It says civil service qualification. It don't say anything like that. It says that Indians will have first preference to all employment on the reservation. Now, it don't mean just the council members and their families. It don't read that way either. Now, a lot of this kind of, kind of a practice is why we're here today. That's why we was brought up here. That uh, we know that these things are being misconducted. And there's room for a lot of straightening out. Another thing, too, when these things come up on the hunting rights, on the pine nuts, we never hear one of these councils getting up and making a protest. Very seldom, after we have made the protest, months later, and it looks like we're going to win, and we hear a weak voice somewhere saying, oh, that's wrong. Who leads the fight? Who, lead, who, put the, who put the white hunters off the reservation where they didn't belong? Who fights for the pinus? Who fights for religious freedom? Different things. It's a traditional as always, because these councils have never known it yet that one of these government-organized councils to ever stand up for the rights of their people when it came down to it. Now, if you can correct me, or correct yourself, I might say, to the point of uh, doing some of that, they've got these legislative laws at Carson City pending right now. They've got the, uh, discriminatory anti-Indian laws. They've got these laws in Washington, 37 of them, all ambitious, all Every one of them designed to do, take away more Indian land. One of them in particular, called the Omnibus Bill. Have you councilmen here made your people aware of the Omnibus Bill? I don't see a copy of it on the table here today. I've got a copy of it here. And that thing was pending two years ago. And it's through our efforts. We got the first copy of it. I'm not going to tell you how we got that either. There's 25 copies turned out, the entire United States and Alaska. We got one of those copies. We had 500 copies made and sent to other tribes all over the United States. It was uh, due to our efforts, the cat got out of the bag in time. We couldn't go to Washington because we're too poor. We don't have that kind of money. We let the Iroquois represent us in Longhouse League in New York. And the Iroquois went down there to Washington. They weren't permitted to speak. No Indian was permitted to speak. They said the Indians had already been consulted behind the closed doors, I guess, somewhere. Yes, a lot of Indians never heard of that thing yet today. They know they had a meeting in the agency at Elko. We had one guy slip in there, and we got a few details on it, where they read the good parts, uh, bait, and uh, then didn't read the other part, and they didn't even leave a copy the Indians to look over. They didn't want it out of their hands till it was passed. Allowing for the eventual mortgage and sale of Indian lands on the reservation too, according to laws in which the land is located. So we got that omnibus bill, and the Iroquois did go to Washington to represent us. And at that time, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had some of their Indians, white man's clothes and neckties slick and shined up waiting over here in the wing case, just in case they needed them, they could run them in. The traditional Indians walked in, most of them in tribal costume, feathers and all. The Iroquois, Matt Bear Anderson, 
from New York. No, this is Washington, D.C. And uh, that's where they were going to pass this bill, this omnibus bill. The Indians couldn't speak. The Indians had to sit up in the balcony at the joint session of the Congress and the Senate. They wanted this bill so bad, Secretary Interior Udall himself came out to speak for it. And when he said the Indians had all been consulted, the Indians in the balcony started to boo and that cat calls, and the congressmen and senators, they turned around to look what was going on up in the balcony, and they knew then the Indians had not all been consulted. Now, it's the same way on these claims. They have had meetings, yes. And they talk about elections, yes. They never said one word about the meeting, last meeting down in Elko when most all the people walked out, a big majority of the people. That was the Indians' way of showing. We never had that way of voting in the first place. And it was the Indians' way of showing they did not want that claim sellout the way they were putting it out. Yet a few remained behind and signed some papers for the lawyer. We know that took place also. The traditional Indians have not been consulted. The traditional Indians have not had a voice in any of these legislative things that have been going on. And in many times, in their own so-called councils. Now, on the local level, I think a lot of this council stuff can be remedied. And it don't only apply to a council. I'll say that any Indian he, he don't have to be a council member. Any Indian that sells his people out, he's an Uncle Tommy Hawk, all right. Any of them. If he's selling out his people, if he's making underhanded deals with the agency or lawyer somewhere to sell his land, his mother is, or sell out his people, he's an Uncle Tommy Hawk. That's my name for him. And as to whether they're puppets or not, that's for them to decide themselves. That is, I'm not going to say that anyone is a puppet, that uh, any council is, is a puppet, because today you've got one group here that may not be representing you. Maybe tomorrow you'll have an entire different group that will represent you. And then, uh, certainly there might be some on the council that are representing the people and some who are not. So it'd be pretty hard to draw a definite definition of the puppet status. A man knows when he's guilty, just like the Indians a long time ago that sold out to the army and led the white soldiers in to kill their own people when the Indians were hiding. For twelve fifty a month, they hired out as scouts to the white soldiers and participated in the murder of their own people, the lowest form of humanity. And that's the kind of Indian we have got some today. And we know who they are, and we're not helpless. This is Pacifica Radio. You're listening to the traditional Indian viewpoint as expressed at a meeting at the Owyhee Indian Reservation of the Western Shoshone Nation in northeastern Nevada, held on 4 January 1969. 
speaker is the legal advisor and medicine man for the Shoshone Nation. Listen as Rolling Thunder speaks. Of it that covered that. 
and I put it before him. And he wanted to argue a little from the white man's viewpoint. You and his camp, this and that. Well, it couldn't hold up because we had the law right there put before him. So in the, in the end, he broke down and he says, you people decide amongst yourselves who was married and who is not married. And, and just like the book says, uh, an Indian marriage is legal for all purpose. Don't let them tell you it's not. You go together Indian way, it's more legal even than a state marriage because it's a federal marriage recognized by federal law. And he says, the Indian agent is Stuart Burton Ladd at that time. I've got a copy of a paper circular he sent out asking the Indians to get married according to a white man's custom, a church, or a justice peace. You get there okay before you get married and pay the fee. Well, we proved to the satisfaction of the Social Security Examiner that that was not necessary, that they could get their Social Security any way that it had already been recognized when they signed the treaty and when they made this federal law. And that's the way it is right today. I'd say 90% of our people down that way have never went for any preacher or just the peace, but they're married just as good as uh, anybody went for any other officials. A medicine man can marry people. A chief can marry people, any tribal official. And if anything comes up, you can get a statement. We've got a farm that can be signed by the chief or a medicine man saying that the people are married and it's better than anything they can come up with. And we won that. Now I'm gonna to have to go into a little bit of prophecy here. Because this is something beyond the white man's law, something that's not included in the white man's law. But when the people are ready to return to their great spirit's way of life, or the Indian way of life, that these medicine men will appear again, these chiefs will come forward again. And the power of the Indian people, it was shown about a year ago. We go by stars, by signs, like all the old people did. I know a few of those. Don't kid yourself, I don't. And there were two stars, and they changed position. There's a large one and a small one. And when those two stars changed position, some of our people have been watching them for several hundred years. And they said, when those two stars changed position, the way of the white man's establishment is finished. It'll go down from then on. The way of the Indian way of life, the natural way of this continent, will come back. And that's why, today, Indians everywhere are standing up that didn't before. It wasn't only in Ruby Valley, but some of you might have seen on television where the Iroquois stopped traffic up there on the border crossing in New York a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, back in Oklahoma, they arrested one Cherokee named John Chewy. I was back there this last June, and they told me about, too, what happened. And I read an account of it later. It came out later in the book, too. And they arrested this Cherokee named John Chewy. 400 Cherokees came into town with guns. They surround the courthouse. They didn't demonstrate. They didn't make a lot of noise. All at once, they decided they didn't want to try this Indian in a state or county court after all. They bound it over for federal court where it belonged in the first place if they wanted to have a trial. 
Now that happened at Jay, Oklahoma, a little town of 1,200 people. The 400 Cherokees came into town and just stood up for their rights. They didn't show any violence, whatever, no demonstration or anything. They just quietly stood around waiting to see how the trial was going to come out. Well, the judge, some of the local law enforcement outfit, they uh, didn't want to stand around very long. They wanted to get rid of that thing and get rid of it just quick as they could. So they got rid of it by binding it over to federal court. Now, I'm not trying to tell you you should do that. Each group are supposed to do things in their own way of doing things. I prefer myself peaceable ways of doing things whenever possible. I don't believe in turning the other cheek. I'm not a Christian. So don't slap me on one cheek and expect I'm going to turn the other one. Because I'm not. I've never joined a foreign religion in my life, and I'm proud of it. I've never joined a white man's religion. I've never joined, I've never voted in his election. I've never joined one of his political parties. Because I was born the traditional, raised that way, been that way all my life. And there's going to be more educated traditionals in the near future that can talk up to these agency and these councilmen or even yet better yet to sit on the council if they have to and uh, there's going to be more educated indians in the future that'll talk indians and talk for their people to be proud they're indian instead of just talking about selling out what little they've got left now on this land claims they're trying to make you think you're going to get rich overnight and it's going to go down in history as one of the biggest frauds ever perpetuated on the Indian people. And nobody gets too high or too big, even a white man, to come down. Secretary of Interior went to jail in 1922. Harold Ickes, I think it was, went to jail in 1922. And you know what it started over? It started over swindling the Indians out of the royal lands up in Wyoming. Now, we're going to draw a line. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We didn't come here to be identified with the uh, so-called uh, local council. I think they got a wrong misinterpretation. We came here to answer questions in a polite way. We came here to represent our people in and, and, uh, such a manner as we know how. But uh, I think they got a wrong interpretation here. We're not one and the same at all. And we don't claim to be. And for my part, I don't want to be a part of you. I'm speaking now of the council. I'm speaking of the Intertribal Council and all the other government-sponsored and organized organizations supposed to represent Indians. So we didn't come up here to join you, to join this uh, so-called uh, government council. We are already organized, and we are already representing the people we're meant to represent. Is it traditional Indians, unrepresented Indians, the ones you don't represent? That's the one we came here. And you haven't told them. I know it's when you get up here to talk about the the uh, this claims deal. All you seem interested in is that money you're going to get. A few lousy dollars. You don't tell the people that they're going to be terminated 
that they're selling the reservations to, that they're going to be put under taxation. And many of those Indians that sold out, and they found out they had to report that money they received, and they didn't know it at first. It went on for several years and then included the interest, and the internal revenue came after them, and finally caught up with them. They, some of them found they owed more money than they had received in the first place. And they're lawyers, supposed to be representing you. They don't tell you that you're going to have to pay taxes. They don't tell you that. Not now they don't. And after they sell, sell out, well, they're through with you. They've made their millions. They don't tell you that every Indian went to school, the cost of the school, the cost of the military occupation, every blanket issued to the Indian, that it comes out of that with interest. But you're selling at the price of 100 years ago without interest. It's a shameful thing. It's, it's downright shameful that they're asking in the first place that a, a person that called himself a man, an Indian, that could get up and advise his people to take something like that. And I'll say that kind of a man he is an Uncle Tommy Hawk. Yes, he's got to be. He's going right down the white man's road. A primrose path where they're going to lead you to destruction to lose all your land and lose your identity where you won't even have a status of an Indian. Your tax-free status will be gone. That's about all we have left. Plus, what little land holding that you do have left. It's also what they're trying to buy is all that oil rights and mineral rights and everything else that they're trying to buy off of you at a cheap 100-year-ago price. You might get enough to buy an old wreck of a car or get drunk on once. One good drunk. That's what some of the Klamaths, the Klamaths got more money than anybody else. They did get around $43,000. And it wasn't but a few weeks the labor broke also. They found out that uh, they were things that they'd never heard of or been told before, plus taxation. And the money was all gone, and they tried to move back in on some of their uh, relatives who hadn't sold, and their own relatives wouldn't have them, because they'd sold their Mother Earth. When you sell this Mother Earth, according to Indian religion, I'll tell you, in case you don't know, I do. And I can tell you, the sun is our father, the earth is our mother. And when you sell your mother, you sell your right to be a man, or to have a place to stand on. And you know what happens to an Indian when he does wrong? Have you ever watched the chief waste away after he had sold out? I have. You know what happens to a medicine man when he does wrong? He loses his power, soon he's gone. But do you know each and every one, there's a penalty involved that the white man cannot protect you. No Indian agent and no white man can protect you. And when you sell your Mother Earth, mister, you're done. You're finished. Because that's where you're going to be very shortly if you do that. My advice is don't sign no kind of sell-out. You can lease your land. You can collect oil royalties. You can do many things. Our Indian religion tells us if the Earth is our mother, if we take care of our mother, it will take care of us. 
So if you take care of it, if you keep it and take care of it, it'll take care of you. You can hunt your game. You can collect your oil royalties. You can collect lease money and many things that'll support you and take care of you in a good way from now on. With good lawyers, you could do this in a proper court. But they hit us at a time the Indians were not organized, had no financial backing, and the government paying these lawyers and paying their expense and set up a special court called the Indian Claims Commission, which is no court at all. It was three men. Now I think they've got about five on there. It's no court at all. It's a committee, a, a commission, more likely, in Washington. And they sit up there and presume to judge whether the Indian owned this right or this land or not, and how much they're going to have to pay you to keep you quiet. But that's a big joke. It's an illusion. They make you think you're going to get the money, and then you don't get it. And you're not going to get that kind of money. Because if you sell out, you've got it coming in the first place, and you deserve to be cheated if you sell out. So there's a lot of people here not selling out. I'm not talking for the sellouts. I don't pretend to be. I'm talking for the people who are traditional and the ones who don't want to sell. And they have not been represented. Now, we're going to be represented in one way or another and very shortly. You councils can't represent them, then we're going to. We're going to fill that gap. Now, one thing I'll advise you, just because this Indian agent, Mr. Stevens, sitting here, or the one down over him, Mr. Zuni, down there at Carson, tells you, let the white hunters come on this reservation. If you take that advice, or any other unlawful advice, well, they're going to be sitting right there with you when that day comes to answer. You're going to face the people, and they're going to face the people in a proper federal court. It ain't going to be down here in Elko to be in a proper place. And you're going to have to explain what your hand was in agreeing to this. White hunters don't belong on the reservation. It's written in the U.S. Code of Law, and there's no provision for them. No provision for them on the reservation. No provision for it at all. And, uh, and it's not right either to lease this rangeland. It can, that can be done under certain circumstances. But like the sheep, it's not right when there's Indians need rangeland. And there's Indians here that don't have enough holding and uh, don't have enough water. And yet, selling the rangeland and water and different things to the white people off the reservation. Now, the Indians here aren't getting enough water, haven't got enough water for many years that I've got records of. Because I keep records of these things, too, for the right time. Now, the white people up above get more. The white people down below get more. And then the councilman gets first, I guess, and then traditional Indians have got whatever's left, and sometimes not enough to water their field. Now, that's going to be stopped. I don't know how we're going to stop it, or what, maybe you'll beat us to it. But it's going to have to be stopped. The federal law also says that any water originating on or flowing through an Indian reservation, that the Indians have prior and first right to that water. And we won that case in court with the Goshoots. 
over on the uh, Idaho-Utah line. So that now the white ranchers have tried to steal the water in the first place. All they get now is a runoff. Now here, you cows are going to sit back and let this situation exist. And you, what kind of a protest have you made for your people that they're not getting enough water? Because the first right to all that water in that wild horse reservoir belongs to these Indian people right here on this reservation. And what have you done to see that your people get this water? And any deer out here belong to these hungry Indians. There isn't much deer on the reservation, but what there is belongs to these Indians. Any fish belongs to the people here. They can, maybe they haven't got enough gas for the car to go way off somewhere to hunt uh, on public domain. But he can step out with his rifle and walk up in the hills and he can get a deer or he can fish. That's one of the rights he's got left. But is he gonna, is this Indian now gonna have to compete with a white sport hunter, a head hunter, that can come here and slaughter them. They've got scopes on their rifles, they've got jeeps, they've got all fancy modern equipment, and here's the poor Indian walking out there with his old blunderbuss, hoping that he might get a piece of meat for his family. Now, that's about all I say. I think I've kind of hinted here that uh, you people haven't been represented. And uh, I might have uh, kind of hinted too that the council here uh, might even not be a legally constituted council if it were put up to a fair contest, a vote. And uh, if I did, I meant to do that. Because I meant every word of it. That, uh, that you have a it's been told to me, and I know it's been told by people who speak the truth, that you haven't been adequately represented, that the votes were not, uh, elections were not conducted in a manner which uh, all the people could participate in, that uh, you've also been misinformed, and not informed in many cases, in many cases not informed at all on many aspects, of these claims, your hunting rights, your water rights, and other things that the council is supposed to be taken care of. Now, I'm not up here to do the job for them. And I'm not going to do the job for them because they're not paying me that kind of money. They're not. But uh, somebody is going to in the near future, going to have to make some changes. Somebody's going to have to do the job. We may even, in time, have to call for a congressional investigation of the Indian Affairs. Okay, that's uh, about all I have to say at this time. So far as being ashamed of myself, I'm not ashamed of myself. I'm proud that I have the courage to stand up for the people and uh, to take a stand if I were the only Indian, if I were only one, I wouldn't change at all. And I can tell you this, like I say, I don't believe in getting personal, but I can take mighty good care of myself if I have to. And if my children are sold out in this land claim, that's going to be personal after it's done. Now what we're going to do, we're going to draw a line, and we're going to separate from the sell-offs. 
Like I say, we didn't. We don't believe in integration as far as integration is concerned. Uh, we didn't come up here to integrate. But uh, it's time we did draw a line. And our prophecies tell us we're supposed to do that at this time. I don't want to be associated with any sellout council or any Uncle Tommy Hawk. And uh, we've got to come in to uh, our own organized way. We've got to stand up for our own organizations. And we're starting to do that. Understand right at this time, there's a petition circulated as to who Oscar Johnny and I and the regional tribal groups are representing. And that'll dissolve you people of any further responsibility in our regards. And after we have completed that, after we have completed, set this petition, this machinery up, I'll warn you one thing. Don't sign anything pretending to represent these traditional Indians because it's not going to work. We're going to be represented. We're going to speak for ourselves if we have to. That's all I have to say now. Listening to Rolling Thunder speak. The traditional Indian viewpoint, as expressed at a meeting at the Oahi Indian Reservation of the Western Shoshone Nation in northeastern Nevada, held on 4 January 1969. The speaker was Rolling Thunder, the legal advisor and medicine man for the Western Shoshone Nation. As a guest of Rolling Thunder, I was privileged to be one of two white people at that meeting where Indian spoke to Indian. I'd like to conclude this program now by sharing some remarks about that January 4th meeting written by Craig Carpenter. He wrote, quote, As one of the many messengers working between and working for various authentic chiefs, spokesmen, and traditional religious leaders of this great Turtle Island, now temporarily called North America or the Americas, I am confident that history will describe the Oahe meeting of January 4, 1969 as one of the most important Indian gatherings of our time. I am confident of this prediction for four reasons. One, for the first time in the 22 years since the anciently prophesied gourd full of ashes dropped from the road in the sky to boil the water and burn the land and leave ashes over a wide area where nothing would grow for many years, heralding the beginning of the Red Man Rebirth Movement, U.S. Indians met with traditional Indians in an open and public meeting. Two, for the first time, in open public, the basic values of the traditional Indian stand for land and life, the great spirit's way of life, now blossoming from coast to coast and from border to border, and as so clearly expressed by Mrs. Egan and Rolling Thunder, 
were compared to the basic values of the minority of Owyhee Indians who have accepted the U.S.-dominated rules and regulations of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Titles 25, and the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act of the so-called Tribal Council, so clearly described by Mr. Garrity, this was an unprecedented open and public comparison. 3. Various extremely important points regarding valuable lands, equally valuable waters, cold hard cash, and vital freedoms or sovereignty are involved in this cultural and political clash between the white man in the White House and the great man in the flowered house, the great spirit. And these points were in this Owyhee meeting introduced for the first time to the open public and partially discussed. 4. For the first time since the invasion four days ago, 400 years ago, there now appears to be a good chance that those key principles and extremely important points will be discussed in future sessions of this Owyhee meeting and discussed in full to the point where a clear and complete understanding by both groups of Indians will automatically result in the mutual respect, friendly cooperation, and unanimous unity of former times, the good old days. As a messenger, I have attended many Indian meetings in the last 22 years, and I truly feel that in many respects the Owyhee meeting of January 4, 1969 was one of the most important meetings I've ever attended. I'm grateful to all who attended and participated in that historic meeting and to the unseen helpers who inspired it and guided it. End of quote. Signed, Craig. This is Mitchell Harding for Pacifica Radio.